Exodus chapter 25. Before I start with Exodus chapter 25, let me ask you a few questions about worship. I'm going to confess on up front, I am, I am tired. It's, uh, it was a warm day yesterday. It was an outside day uh, all day yesterday, and it was finally summer, and so it's, and it's been a busy week, and there's also been kind of this... Uh, slow accumulation of a little bit of anxiety that I've had about this upcoming week, a lot of unknown. So I kind of come this morning, honestly, if I could be transparent, really wishing I could stay in bed. I don't know if anybody else has had that. If so, don't admit it, uh, because, you know, self-esteem right now for a pastor kind of cuts at you. But I know that we've all experienced that. So here's some questions that I want you to consider. First question, why did you even come to worship this morning? There are so many other things that you could be doing this morning. There are lawns to be mowed. There's laundry to be done. There's house cleaning. There's games. There's friends. There's family members. There's restaurants. There's all kinds of things that you could be doing this morning. So why are you even here? And what really are you looking for this morning? Why are you in worship and what are you looking for? Second question, I want you to think about what has been your best worship experience ever. Your best worship experience ever that you've ever had. What was it about that moment or that event that has made an imprint on your mind and on your heart. What was it about that time that so deeply connected with your soul? Three, and I posted this question on Facebook. How vital is congregational worship to your life? How vital is it? How many weeks or months or years could you survive without congregational worship? And what would your life look like without it? Some of you go, okay, it, I know that there were seasons of my life where I was not in the church at all for like a year, two years, five years, ten years, a month or a week or longer. So why are you here? It's great that you are here, but why are you here? What is the reason that you are here this morning at 9.30ish in the morning to, for the sake of worship? Why are you here? Sometimes we don't even think about asking ourselves that question. We've kind of gotten into this routine, this mundane kind of thing, a habitual pattern of just doing what we've always done. So we're going to be always continuing doing what we've always done, right? Some come to church, we come to church to, to sing some songs, listen to a, a sermon, we say hi to the people that we like, and we avoid the people that we don't like, and then we go home. Only to repeat that, we come again, sing some songs, we listen to a sermon, we, see, we say hi to the people that we like, and we avoid the people that we don't like, hit replay, and it happens over and over and over and over again. And maybe it's a gross oversimplification and hopefully an overly pessimistic view of your picture of worship, 
But I would imagine that the reality is there have been seasons in your life where you wonder, what am I really doing here? What am I really doing here? Worshiping on a Sunday morning. So that's kind of a... I ask those questions because we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 25, which is going to be the beginning, as I shared last week, it's going to be the beginning of a six-week series where we're going to be looking at the construction of God's first place where corporate worship is going to be taking place. So worship is going to be the main theme here, worship. So let's read together Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and finely twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, and acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for settings for the ephod and the, the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a, cu and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make, it, make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold on it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the, the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit, cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end, and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on the two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. You shall put the, the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I get, shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in the commandment for the people in Israel. Of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. 
You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around, its, around it, a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around, it, around the rim. And you shall make it for, for it four rims, rings of gold and fasten the rings of, to the four corners at its legs. Close to the frame, the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. You shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the, the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be, made, shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand on, out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups made it make three cups made like almond blossoms each with calyx and flower on, on, one on one blossom, on one branch, and three cups made with almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on the other branch, so that the six branches going out of the lampstand. On, one, on the lampstand, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms, and there calyxes and flowers, and a calyx on the, of the... Calyx of one piece with it under each pair of six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. And the whole of it shall be a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps of it for it. And the lamp shall be set up so that to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and it, their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a tent of pure gold. See to it that you make them after the pattern for them, which is shown, being shown you on the mountain. This is the word, Lord. So like I said, for the next six weeks, we're going to look closely at the tabernacle the earthly design for worship in the life of Israel. But the point of Exodus 25 to Exodus 33 is not about the specifics of the tabernacle. We need to keep that in mind. This is not just, man, we're just going to be looking at blueprints over these next four, uh, six weeks. It's not just about blueprints, but the real point here is about the God who is to be worshipped in this tabernacle. Worship mattered because God matters. And God is very explicit, very clear about worship. So it matters to God. So it should matter to us. So there's a great deal amount of time and attention given to the construction of the, of the tabernacle. In chapters 25 to 30, they provide a tremendous amount of instruction for the tabernacle itself, the objects that are going to be used for worship, the priest's consecration, and their attire. And if you look to chapters 36 to 39, you will see that Exodus records the construction 
process. So in other words, there are six chapters that tell us about the tabernacle and what it should look like, and then four more chapters telling us what the people did exactly and how they did it exactly as the Lord commanded. So the tabernacle is important enough to record the detailed instructions and the detailed construction. The point? What is the point of all this? For these 10 chapters about the construction, the details and the construction, the point is that worship matters. Worship matters. So as we study this section, you'll see that is just ripe with intricate details and intricate and very specific instructions about the hows and the wheres and the whats. God gives very explicit instructions about what goes on these things and how it's to be used. And it can seem overwhelming, especially, and I'm trying to read through this golden lampstand section with the calyxes and the cups and the, all this, and it's all, and it's, you're just going, okay, mind explosion. What's going on here? What does it look like? But these details can be overwhelming, and yet this is all part of God's divine design. His divine design. And so part of the beauty and the amazing thing about God is he is unbelievably creative. Creative. And I think so many of us think, man, God, boring. Kind of sucks the life out of all kinds of things. And there's no beauty. You know, even in our church, I love it. But there should be creative and beauty even where we gathered to ultimately point us to, to God. And God is using artwork in his tabernacle to point the people to himself. The taber tabernacle was meant to communicate the worthiness of worship and every detail mattered. You see, God is communicating something here. He's not only speaking and giving his law, the tabernacle itself is sending out a message. One of the things that I found fascinating in my study and my, kind of my research about the tabernacle is it seems in this section of scripture that God is following a creation motif, a creation motif in the instructions regarding the tabernacle. There are seven times between chapters 25 and 31 where the text records the Lord said to Moses, seven times. And the, fi the final time is, is in Exodus 31, verse 12, a command that involves Sabbath rest. So six days God created the whole world, right? He spoke and it was. Each day it was by his word that the planet sp spun into existence and the, the, there were lights and there's shining and there was grass and there were animals. And seven day six days he did all this work and then there was the last day where he said, rest, rest. So it seems that these instructions regarding the tabernacle are even following a recreation theme. God is before their eyes saying, okay, do this, do this, because it's ultimately pointing towards your ultimate rest. So this makes... A lot of sense if you understand that the tabernacle 
is to be a div- has a divinely prescribed pattern that was meant to be helping the people see a piece of heaven while on earth. So if God, heaven is God with man, if that is what heaven is about, the tabernacle was designed to be a foreshadowing of what is to come. And even the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 8, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, everything about the tabernacle was meant to send a message. It was to meant, it meant to communicate. It was, a, it was a conduit to point the people towards God. It was designed to give them a taste of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. Meeting with God here will give you a foretaste of what it will totally be like in the new heavens and new earth. I read somewhere where an author said, if you don't like worship now, what makes you think that you are going to love it for eternity? In other words, if worship doesn't matter to you now, why do you think it will matter to you in the future? My aim is simply for us this morning to challenge our natural tendency as humans, where we have this propensity to fall into patterns that detract us from God's original purposes. So when it comes to worship, I hope that you will approach your and our assembly here together as extremely important and vital for your life. Our gathering, I hope that you see, is vital to your spiritual life. My hope is that through this section, you'll come to see and feel the weight of why worship matters. So before we get into the specifics about the furnishings of this tabernacle, it's important to note that divinely designed worship is not just something that human beings passively give or receive. It's just not a passive kind of thing. It always has been the case that there's an important role for God's people to fulfill in worship. So this morning, you are not just passive recipients. You are to be active recipients and active givers as well. God prescribes the worship, but it's facilitated. He says, this is what worship should be like. But yet his people are the ones who are facilitating and giving worship. In other words... Even the people of God provide the space for worship. So as we got a congregational meeting coming up in a, in a few weeks, Sunday uh, the 27th, is that what it is? 28, somewhere around there. Uh, the Sunday after the, the camping trip, the no camping trip, we are, we're going to be talking about buildings. And buildings matter because God's people provide a place where Worship can be facilitated where we actively are giving worship. So their giving, even in this section, we see that giving was a part of the worship expression. Materials were needed for construction. 
They were needed for this worship center. But notice the way in which they were to be given. Did you see that in verse 2? Speak to the people of Israel that they will take for me a contribution. How? From every man whose heart moves him. Shall you receive the contribution for me? Precious resources were to be given. Verses 3, 3 to 6 identify them for us. You know, you got, you got the gold, you got the silver, you got, the, uh, you got bronze, you got blue and purple and scarlet yarns, you got finely twined linen, you got goat hair, which for us we're going, ah, that doesn't sound attractive, but it's, it's critical. Acacia uh, wood, you got ram skins, you got oil for lamps, you got all these kind of things that are really specifically laid out. We need these things. But take note of the principle established according to the biblical record. God is worshipped by cheerful giving. Cheerful giving. Whose hearts are moved. And that's not, they're moved because they're being guilted into it. Their hearts are moved because of who they know God is. They are reminded, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am that God. I am not like you, but I like you. I love you. And I've provided a way for you. And now I want to dwell among you. So their hearts are moved for worship. God doesn't need, we know this, God doesn't need our resources. He's already told us that all of the earth is his. So God doesn't need our resources per se. The generosity of God's people is not about God's lack in his storehouse. Generosity is about personal participation in worship. When you give, it is about worship. Giving is an individual and a corporate expression that says worship matters. And when you give in any way, but especially to the place where you worship, it says worship really matters. Also, I don't want you to miss the significance of verse 8. And, and I think you just need to savor in the beauty of what it says here. Mankind would create a place where God will meet with us. Verse 8 says, let them make me a sanctuary. Not just a sanctuary, it's not just a gathering place, but that I may dwell in their midst. God is going to be tabernacle living in their midst. I, I think of the beauty and the value of being, being able to take human possessions and put them together to facilitate the presence of God, the God of the universe. God is going to be with his people, with our, our mere offerings. God is choosing to dwell here with our stuff. So if you believe that worship matters, if worship matters, if you value the powerful presence of God in your life, then giving will be part of that equation. It's just a natural piece. It's how we participate, listen to these words, how we participate in the transcendence and the eminence of God. How we participate in the transcendence and eminence of God. Worship really matters so much 
that we would give so that it would happen. So what happens in worship? I would suggest to you that worship is our response to God's distance and God's nearness. God's distance and His nearness. Our response is, our worship is our response to the fact that God is not like us, but He likes us. Worship is our response to the transcendence and the imminence of God. So those two words, transcendence and eminence, I'm not sure if you, you're familiar with them, but let me kind of define them for you. First, to be transcendent means that God is superior or supreme. It means that God is, is beyond us, that he is greater than us, that he, 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 he is other than us. He is beyond, he is so beyond us. And so to reflect on the transcendence of God means that you bask in his be- the beauty of his holiness, in his majesty, in his greatness, or his power. Because those are all other attributes that we do not have for ourselves. Those are so God characteristic. We just bask in those characteristics. We go, man, God is transcendent. He is so other. He is so unlike us. I am enjoying God for who he is. Eminence, on the other hand, means that God is close. That God is dwelling nearby. That God is intimate. That God is personal. It captures the manner in which God loves his people, is concerned for their needs, how God rescues them and has a relationship with them. True, robust worship reflects on both the transcendence and the eminence of God. It, it, it is a response to the otherness and the nearness of God. And this is reflected in the designs and the elements of the tabernacle. So here we go. We start off with the Ark of the Covenant. The first aspect that is listed is this strange box that has a lot of details. The Ark is the signature element of the tabernacle. And it is, and that is why it is first listed here. They don't start out with the, the coverings and the house kind of features. It starts off with the centerpiece of this whole tabernacle. Of all the things in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant is the most important. And we'll learn about this more in a moment. But first, verses 10 through 16 gives us the basic dimensions and the composition of the Ark. It is actually a very small piece of furniture, approximately three feet, nine inches long and two feet, four inches tall and wide. It's cut, it would probably be best described as a chest. It's not a huge thing. It's just a, a small little chest. and It was made of wood and it was overlaid with gold. The ark was meant to be portable. There were rings through which poles were inserted, and they were, did you read? They was to be kept in place, keep those poles there, so they could be transported easily, and so it would not be touched by human hands. There's an example of this, the do-not-dos. Um, the, 
The ark was actually physically touched by a man named Uzzah um, during the reign of King David, where he touched it so that it would not fall. And what happened to him? Instantly killed. Instantly killed. The ark is the holiest, the holiest of all elements. And we're going to learn why in, in verses 17 through 22. On top of this ark was a cover made of pure gold. Pure gold. And on either side of this cover were two gold cherubim. They're not the fat little you know, angels that strum these harps. These, these are two cherubim whose wings spread over the mercy seat, and they were facing each other. Cherubim were very familiar creatures to the people who lived in the ancient Near East. They were viewed as heavenly beings or angels who surround and guard the glory of God. The cherubim first appeared in Genesis chapter 3, the first time, and they were set as guards of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had been expelled because of their rebellion. That's our first mention of them. Cherubim are synonymous with the holy presence of God. They were important, important symbol for God's presence, and the ark is not the only place where they are found. The fabric that, that serves as covering for the tabernacle and the specific veil between the holy place and the holy of holies had woven into them a design of cherubim. So they were just all surrounding this ark itself. Cherubim, 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 cherubim. This, per, this symbol is so important that God is often described as the one who is enthroned between cherubim. Psalm 99 verse 1 said, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon cherubim. Let the earth quake. So this is who God is. And the ark is the most important feature of this tabernacle because it represents the very presence of a holy and awesome God. It was a symbol, an earthly symbol of heaven here on earth. But the ark also communicates something extremely important about atonement. Verse 17 in the ESV calls the cover a mercy seat. The NIV and other translations render it as an atonement cover. An atonement cover. So there's something more than just symbolism and decoration going on here. The word used here basically means, to, a mercy seat basically means a cover. But Old Testament scholars tell us that the Hebrew word here has broader meaning that extends beyond just physical. Words often have different meanings and different takes on their meaning. For example, if the phone rings here and Todd, Todd says, hey, Paul, uh, the White House called. I, I know that it's not really the White House, a, a house making a phone call. I know that there is something behind the White House called, meaning that somebody is having a communication with me, desiring communication. And that's what's happening here. 
Matir in his commentary on Exodus says that the word for cover in its intensive form comes from a word that means to pay a price to cover for an offense. To pay a price to cover for an offense. In case you're not familiar with the word propitiation, it's a theological word for atonement that restores, that talks about restoring a relationship between God and human beings. Some versions call this a propitiation cover or an atonement cover or the mercy seat. In other words, a price has got to be paid for what? For an offense to be covered. And so inside this ark was the testimony or the, a copy of the law that God had given to Moses. The Ten Commandments were now in here, a testimony of God's words to his people. And the law recorded God's holy standard for his people. And the covering, the, the covering, covering the law of God in the ark was this mercy seat. Law, mercy seat. And the, on the most holy day of the year for these Jewish people was the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest would take an offering of blood into the holies of holies. And he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for God's people. So when, when God talks about his relationship with his people as mediated through the tabernacle, he connects it directly to the mercy seat. When you start putting this all together, it's a stunning picture of the starting point of God's relationship with his people. There's a message being sent here, and I think it's loud and clear. The ark is so holy that no one can touch it, and it is to be kept in the holy of holies, a place that is entered into only once a year. It contains the law of God which is covered, which has a covering where it shows God's presence. God's very presence is here. And once a year, once a year, blood is sprinkled on this covering. And it is here between the cherubim that God will meet with his people. Therefore, seems obvious at least to me that the ark was the central feature of the tabernacle, because the central message of the entire Bible is atonement, the covering over, over, the making a way for God's people to come near to God. The ark was the center gravity, because atonement is the only means that unholy people can even be in the presence of a holy God, a transcendent God. So everything about the ark was meant to communicate the otherness of God and it's a vital piece of their worship on a yearly basis. God's presence is here. He is holy. We cannot enter into this place except once a year and that is for applying blood so that God will have mercy on us so that we can be his people. 
So we're going to talk about the, the nearness of God in a moment, but I think worship begins with the right understanding of the holiness of God. So often we think about the nearness and the warmth and the cuddliness, the relationship with God, but it is critical that we start off with the transcendent, the otherness of God. So give me, let me give you a few examples of how we can do this. One, preparation. As you think about coming to Sunday morning worship, you ought to think about the fact that you are coming to meet corporately with God's people in the presence of a holy God. Preparing. You ought to anticipate this gathering by being well-rested and singularly focused. And I know that's difficult. But preparing our heart to meet with a transcendent God. Another way that we can do this is by participation. As a worship service takes place, you ought to be engaged and looking for ways God is going to reveal himself to you through congregational singing, even if it's songs that you don't particularly like or that you don't particularly know. You should be using your mind to participate, looking to see how God is going to reveal himself through congregational singing or through scripture reading or prayer or the sermon. You ought to be engaged because you are meeting with God. Unction. Kind of a good, another theological word. Unction is, are those moments when you know that God is clearly speaking. There have been those moments in, in preaching where I go, oh, this is such a God moment because this was so not me, me speaking and not so planned on my end, but God is definitely moving and doing something. God is speaking. So when it, come, when it seems as though God by His Spirit has moved upon an individual or an entire congregation, we ought to long for and pray for and anticipate those seasons where God is moving. So unction. But there's also reflection. God has you here this morning for a reason. You're here for a reason even if you came kicking or screaming and reluctantly, you ought to take time to reflect and to talk with others about your experience with God. And you ought to be looking to respond because meeting with God is never an end to itself. It's not like, oh, I just had a great coffee with God. There's always this next step of, I have come into the presence of God and now I cannot help but to respond and to live in such a way in light of the holiness and the otherness, the power and the beauty and the majesty of this God. I have met with God. Now, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? Of course, meeting with your creator is something you do personally, but it's also something unique and helpful and powerful about the experience in a corporate sense. We can quickly miss it here in this tabernacle. The tabernacle was not meant for just me going to a church to have it sit in the first pew with God. It was where the people corporately would meet with God. 
In other words, we need to be gathered together, together on a regular basis to consider and bask in the transcendence of God. While this church building, hear this, while this church building is not a tabernacle, it's not a tabernacle, there is something sacred, sacred and otherworldly and transcendent that happens here. And as much as it killed me and bothered me as a kid growing up, you need to be absolutely silent in church. There's no running in church. You dress differently in church because we are going to worship. I think there's something about that that is right. Something about that that's all totally wrong. The motives have got to be right. Children, teenagers, adults, we are meeting with a holy and awesome God. And there's a way that we meet together that reflects his transcendent nature. Next comes to the lampstand, table and lampstand. These were kept in the holy place. So you have the holy of holies, which is like the, the, the vault nobody goes into except the high priest once a year. And then outside that gets a bit larger, and that's called the holy place. And this particular room was frequented by the priests. It was a room that contained elements that needed to be maintained weekly. Verses 23 to 30 give us a description of a table. It was made with wood and it was overlaid with gold. It contained rings and poles for transportation again. But the main feature of the table was not the table. The main feature of the table was not the table itself, but the bread that was placed upon the table. Listen to Leviticus 24. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the pure table, table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So the table with food, which was consumed by the priests, was designed to communicate a close close fellowship of God with his people. The table symbolized the nearness of God and his provision for his people. It, it was designed to communicate he's here. He's here and here as the one who gives us our sustenance as seen through bread. It's, it's hard to see it isn't hard to see the parallel between this table, what is often called the Lord's table, right? Everything about the Lord's table is meant to communicate the nearness and the sustenance of God. This is my body given for you. 
And the table in worship communicates fellowship and provision. Another furnishing of the holy place is that all-perplexing lampstand. Verses 31 to 40 give very specific instructions uh, for this piece. And it's to be made entirely of gold. All one piece. I would not want to be that craftsman. Detailed. There were six branches, three out of each side, and a single light in the middle. And the lights and the cups were like almond buds. Now, there's not a lot of clear and convincing statements as to the spiritual significance to that lampstand. So we have to be careful not to overread something into it that's not there. But here's just a few thoughts. First, Leviticus chapter 24 tells us that Aaron was to prepare the lampstands from evening to morning. Uh, the, the tabernacle was, at night, would just glow from the light of this lampstand, likely a symbol of God's presence. So the children of Israel who, who would be camping around this tabernacle, from wherever, whatever vantage point they had, they could see this glowing presence of God in their midst. So the light from the tabernacle would have shone throughout the entire camp. Secondly, since the lampstand was built to look like an almond tree, it seems that this, it was an image of a living tree, and it was meant to be symbolized here. And we've also already seen images of a tree that gives life, right? And if God is saying, listen, I am going to give you a recreation motif, and I'm also going to give you a picture of what the Garden of Eden is going to look like. I'm going to incorporate a tree into this whole thing. And third, since fire and light indicate God's presence in other places in the Bible, i.e. The, the burning bush, it would make sense that the tabernacle itself would include this motif of fire. So when you put this all together, it seems that the lampstand was an important symbol of God's presence or his close proximity to his people. The light that it gave would, would have made the tabernacle appear to be a tent with somebody living inside it. We've seen this camping as Missio Day Church. When there's a light on, it's basically somebody's there. Something's going on inside of it. The lampstand and the table both highlight the nearness and the presence and the close proximity of God to his people. They highlight his, his imminence. There's another aspect of worship that is, that is marvelous to worship. True worship considers the otherness of God, but it also celebrates the relationship that we have with him. True worship ponders what, what John said in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Worship considers a beautiful reality that God cares, really cares and loves for us, loves us, and it is present. God is present with us. It celebrates the nearness of God, and, and worship meditates on the fact that God is not somehow distant and uninvolved and 
this uncaring divinity out there. He's near. He's personal. He's loving. He's kind. And worship is the stunning consideration of these two realities, the transcendence and the eminence of God. It is a heart that says, he's unbelievable, and yet he's right here. That's what worship is. He's absolutely unbelievable, and he's here. Worship is the design, divinely designed intersection between the otherness and the nearness of God. And the tabernacle sent that message very clearly. God would be the center of their life. Nothing would be more mysterious and nothing would be far more glorious than that. Nothing would be more important and nothing would be more life-giving. The worship of Yahweh would define and mark the people of God. So when you read about this, this intersection between the transcendent and the imminent in the tabernacle, it points you to consider Jesus. He's the ultimate expression of God's otherness and his nearness. He is God in the flesh. He is God man. Hebrews 9 gives us a summary of the way in which things uh, like the tabernacle, point to him. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. When Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest who enters the holy place once a year with the blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of all the ages to put away all sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will come, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. So the transcendence and the eminence of the tabernacle, as glorious and beautiful and powerful as it is, is only a picture that was inaugurated by Christ and will be ultimately fulfilled in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a taste. So the spiritual gravity of Israel was the, the Ark of the Covenant. But the center of spiritual gravity in the New Testament is not the Ark of the Covenant. It is Jesus. Therefore, when we come to worship, we are meeting with Jesus. Our, our singing, our greeting, our giving, our listening, our responding to his word are all interactions with him. He has filled us with his spirit such that we have fellowship with one another and with him. So true worship is not just about being friendly with one another. 
singing songs that you like or getting something out of the sermon or learning something about the Bible. It is personal and it is corporate meeting of God's people as they respond to the transcendence and the eminence of God through the work and person of Jesus Christ. He is God with us. So why did you come to worship today? I can ask now, what did you get out of the sermon? Those aren't bad questions. But they are not the sum total of worship. True worship basks in the beauty and the grace-filled drama of God who is not like us, but who has come to us. True worship is meeting with your God so that your heart bursts forth in loving, risk-taking obedience in a world that desperately needs to know Him. It is being filled with the fullness of God. Consider that next time you want to skip out on church. That's not guilt. It's we gather to experience the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for your transcendent nature, your otherness, your holiness, your, your beauty, your power. We worship you for who you are in your transcendent nature, but we also worship you for your eminence, your, your personal right here, dwelling amongst us, with us, empowering us as we go. Lord, would, would you this morning start changing our minds about what happens here? That it's not just a, hey, I got to start church on a Sunday morning or the week with a Sunday morning worship thing because that's what we do. Would you change our minds to understanding and desiring that we are to worship you, God, in our midst. That we are worshiping Jesus Christ, God, man. So God, would you, would you change our minds so that we can more fully Enjoy you, fellowshipping with you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.